Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. It's, what is it, Tuesday? It's Tuesday. August 4th, like we're in a 2020. Fever yes. yeah. Okay, and uh, we have a special guest today. We're on a delayed basis because we had to make our way home from Block Island. That's right. But joining us today is Zeke Abuhoff. Out in California. Hello. Hi there, Zeke. Yes, we made the treacherous journey back from Black Island, Block Island back to the mainland, and we are uh, sort of re-acquainting uh, ourselves with everything that goes on in the mainland. It's quite a different way of life. Really? Yes, but we're making all the necessary <laughs> we adjustments. Have uh, we have internet. We have refrigeration. We have all manner of modern conveniences. We have air conditioning, but we don't have you the ocean. Are, you're so. still on island time. We are on island time, and we have an island way of thinking. So if well, I'm, not just just wait a minute. We still have the humidity. We have the wind. Yeah. Uh, it's been pretty crazy it's here. It's a storm today. Yeah. Hurricane. Isa. Isa. Yeah. What? Sure. I thought it's Isaiah's. Isaiah's. No, no, it's not Isaiah's. Isaiah's. But whatever. Moving through. It's, Moving through. Yeah, it's tropical uh, pretty storm. much. But our minds are in, on island time. So if we wander, Zeke, if we uh, start going on and on, you'll bring us back to the subjects at hand. Mm-hmm. You'll keep us disciplined. We appreciate that. Uh, and we, of course, you know, are casting up with what's going on in the real world, which we'll be addressing head on, as we always do in the podcast, right? That's I know. That's a little... Uh, uh, irony on your part. We <laughs> rarely pay attention to what's going we're on. We're only in the world. five degrees off. We're, okay. we're in the neighborhood. It's a neighborhood right. play. Moving right along. Yes. What's on your mind? Well, I, you know, I thought we were going to start uh, by getting into this pod school controversy. Well, know. here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Getting According to the New York Times, the rich people don't know what the heck to do about school in the fall. And they're coming up with various solutions. One of them is, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not being facetious here. The Times is really saying uh, as public schools seek solutions well to do. Parents hire educators. Yes. Okay. It's, okay. So there's a, like a the whole times. story about right. a meeting amongst some parents uh, in upstate New York, uh, where there's a presentation uh, being put forth by a company that provides pod schooling. Okay. So what is the name of this company? I've already forgotten. Hudson Lab School. Mm-hmm. So they put together a pod, like a small group uh for it's homeschooling but with 12 or 13 with students. a real instructor with a small class and a small class and uh it's only going to cost you about thirteen thousand. well that's because they amortize the cost over the group uh, the group the pod group so they have 12 or 13 students everyone pays thirteen thousand dollars let's say and uh, these folks take home something in excess of one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Uh, which makes it worth their while. And uh, it's somewhat flexible. I mean, I think you pointed out yesterday to me that it's generally a single subject, although I suppose it could be more. No, 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 no. That's a different article. Oh, okay. okay. What is it then? <laughs> All right. It's more so, than one subject? Yeah. This is, uh, this is they, set to, they put together uh, learning pods. Mm-hmm. They create a bubble. So right. you have your own family bubble, right? right? But the idea is perhaps it's safe enough to create you know, a social and educational bubble, right? And uh, have your kids share school. Well, with social in that distancing, way. the kids they might don't be go out outside. to the public school, right? Okay, 
and uh, but uh, and they get an education. It's something between tutoring and private schools, and it's to sort of fill the gap uh, that's created by online education being inadequate. And I think there's a growing consensus that online education, especially for younger people, is inadequate. So that that's what it's meant to address. So it's a, it's reasonable, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this one parent is saying my children didn't get an education this spring, hmm. so they're anxious to find some kind of solution. Yeah. All right. So that's one solution. Okay. And of course, it's fraught with problems because if you're still going to stay safe, you have to be very confident that the other members of the educational pod, the yeah. bubble, are doing everything the right way as right. well. But you can Are distance. they allowed to? Uh, most of these people, they're in upstate New York, but a lot of them have places in New York City. Are they allowed to make runs to New York City to do stuff right. and be exposed to people? Or what You know, what will I be think, I think all well, that's manageable. Um, kids are know, going to be distant. And, and, and people are desperate because they're saying, uh, you know, uh, a zillion scenarios. You know, my kid does all the work that he's assigned uh, by 9.30 in the morning, then I don't know what the heck to do. Uh, or, you know, well, that's, the kids are unsupervised. They have no idea how to get themselves through this stuff. And I'm not that much help. So that's one solution. Now, another solution is that people are signing up for school at their um, summer homes. Right. So, so been, that's a big thing out in the Hamptons. They went out to the Hamptons to, right. to miss the COVID in New York City. And now... They want the kids to go to school in the Hamptons. So they're signing up for public school there. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the Hamptons doesn't doesn't seem to mind. They've been having fewer. They've been having attrition in their school oh, system. Oh, really? I so didn't they know. Have I, thought, room. I thought I would mind. They actually have room. They, they said something about that's been getting more and more um, crowded. In, mm-hmm. No, more and more expensive. Uh, the people are getting priced out of... Uh, the neighborhood, uh, so they have room. Okay, oh, great. so that's one solution: public schools. Of course, you have to be comfortable that the public schools are good enough. Right. But maybe anything is better. Right. Than well, whether uh, it's what's the going Hamptons or no. then yeah. there are also private schools out in the Hamptons who are seeing their application rates skyrocket. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is one uh, in particular. And uh, that's the Ross School. Mm-hmm. And uh, listen to this. They're going to be having classes in outdoor tents, 15 tents mm-hmm. they have for their students. And the students go somewhere from fourth grade to 11th, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it'll be outside. They have a 63-acre campus. So, of course, the parents are feeling good about that. Right. People will be outdoors, have plenty of room. Uh, excellent school system and so on. But again, it's, you know, this is what if you, you know, you know the Times is underscoring that these solutions are open to the wealthy, but uh, not everybody else. Now, some of the problems with all this pod schooling is even though you're maybe getting better education and you're around a few other kids, you're really not, you know, you're really still missing out on everything else about social interaction mm-hmm. with uh, a group of, uh, you know, a nice, diverse Yeah. Uh, well, even a large people. number of kids. It's a limited group, and uh, they're interacting in a limited way. So, right. right, both in terms of, you know, socially and intellectually. Uh, not a lot of uh, possibilities there. So, 
Those are the solutions. And they range, they range, you know, from uh, very expensive to super expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's not a surprise that, uh, you know, that people are trying to scramble to fill the gap. And it's not a surprise that it costs money. And therefore, it's not a surprise that those with money have more choices available to them. And even with that, uh, it's not a perfect solution. So so COVID scrambling things kind of we don't have young kids. Uh, we don't kind of feel for those folks who do have young kids and they have to make these tough choices. Uh, and I have spoken to enough of them to know that it's, you know, foremost in their minds, but uh, they'll figure it out. I mean, there's, uh, again, in terms of adjustments with COVID, there was an article in the Times headline was riding subway might not prove, might not pose inordinate risk. That's what it said on the front page of the New York Times the other day. And how uh, could that possibly be? It can't. Uh, so what does it say in the article? It says in the article that there are other cities, namely in Europe, where uh, they've been uh, increasing ridership to some degree and nothing horrible has happened yet, but we'll see. Places like Paris or whatever. But it, it, even in the, yeah, in the it attitude... Basically, yeah. It basically says that if in cities where the infection rate is much lower and you have 60% of typical ridership on the system, a system that systems that are generally, uh, in many cases smaller and better cared for than the New York subway system, the infection rate on the subway is lower, or maybe we can't trace it. So, <laughs> or, or not. It's it's really a double-decker nothing burger, yeah. I would say, this, <laughs> this claim. Yeah, well, I it's, like the way uh, you put it, Zeke, that it's limited to, they, they draw a comparison between uh, New York and cities where the subway system is uh, smaller and better maintained, which would be every other single subway system in the world, as, as far yeah. as I can tell. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like, I can't repeat so it. What, so what is this? Just a puff piece to try to encourage people to go on the subway? The time swings, whatever. They're feeling bad for the subway because it's still only 20% ridership or something like that? I don't know what, I don't know what motivates the Times to write a lot of its stories, but... Uh, but we can guess. Uh, maybe what, what more of a guess? panic piece than a puff piece. One thing I notice in common between both this article about the subway and uh, the other article they did about pod schools is that... It seems that someone, maybe the author or the editors at the Times, maybe the people demanding stories from the Times, uh, are anxious to read and write stories about things returning to normal. Um, this, uh, like, really, this this article about about the subways just it it reeks of wishful thinking. There's just a lot of like, oh, well, these people they have it a little bit better, and maybe they kind of made it work. These people, the evidence is inconclusive, but we can imagine that maybe it's good. And when yeah. you look at the pod school article, uh, the the author of that cites Sweden as an example of a place where schools have uh, been able to operate. Uh, I listened to an NPR piece the other day where Sweden was held up as a, a worst case scenario for reopening schools because teachers have died there. Mm. So there's I think there there are perhaps cases where some of these writers are saying, you know, well, I'd like to believe things could go back to normal. I want to believe that New York can be okay. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to write about the evidence so much as I'm going to write about a pretty optimistic take on a sliver yeah, of the but evidence. I, I disagree with that to some Look, I don't want to get into the Times as a whole because it, it, it covers a lot more articles than we're covering now. And I, But I think what you're saying is accurate with respect to these couple of articles. But generally, that's not the Times' view. 
Uh, Times is is, yeah. is 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 usually more Armageddon, worst case scenario. You know, everything's going to heck in a handbasket. My, my favorite was two days ago a headline in the Times saying, uh, and this was the main headline in the Times that increasing concern that uh, the uh, development of a vaccine uh, will be rushed. And I'm saying to myself, you know, <laughs> of, all the, of all the big concerns we've got, the idea that they're going to move too fast on a vaccine, uh, I don't think that's, that, that's considered a main problem. I mean, we might take a hard look at it, but I don't think that's a reason to lose any sleep. I mean, you do want, generally speaking, people working on that. So, uh, and yet, Times was wringing its hands about well, that. Well, Times or not, everybody's writing articles citing data, yeah. like the Swedish data, right, okay, that, that suits them. Yeah, right? that's for sure. There's a lot yes. of, in this day and age of, you know, a lot of actual data, people are still making it up as they see fit. Yeah, well, that's true. It, yeah, um, you're exactly right about that. To support whatever they you're way exactly they feel. right. Well. So the next article is just a little bit that you had about the Taylor's Thames. And, and, uh, but it, 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 I think it might fit into the nothing burger category that Zeke's established for us. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's true. All right, you tell me why. Uh, well, I think it's, it's uh, so it's uh, kind of fun. Uh, well, not fun, but uh, maybe it's sad. I don't know. <laughs> what? Anyway, you know, dry cleaners and tailors, you know, the little alteration guys with the dry cleaners, their business went into the toilet right. in the first three months because of course no one's going anywhere no one's getting any clothes cleaned right, right? and uh no one needs any uh, alterations done because they don't need anything fixed to go anywhere right. and then uh Business started creeping back up, allegedly because people can't fit into their pants anymore to the extent they're wearing pants. Um, you know, it's the COVID-19 uh, that everybody has gained. And so there's a, just a little article citing various, uh, mostly small-time guys. The big guys, the guys who are, you know, have big uh, contracts to custom make a tuxedo or wedding dress or something like that. Mostly those have been delayed, not canceled, but uh, they have this uh, one guy who everybody in his family <laughs> sent him back to work with all their clothes uh, to be, um, you know, let out, yeah. etc. cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, well, Mr. Choi from Long Island City was trying to discourage his customers from getting their clothing altered. He said, uh, you know, if I do that, it's going to change the drape, the flow, the look. You won't really like it. And uh, another guy had the theory that I don't think that people have actually gained that much weight. The pants were tight to begin with. And now that we're sitting around more, we're more uncomfortable yeah. in them. Well, I look, okay. what it tells you is that a lot of these tailors are deep thinkers and uh, statesmanlike in their approach. Uh, not looking to make a, a quick buck, but thinking ahead in terms of what's really going to satisfy the customer and what's going to the customer's mind. So, uh, you All know, right. so anyway, kudos. Various kudos to the tailors. Strategies. Listen, but they I are think, the leaders like we need now. They I are. like that idea. My <laughs> pants are not that tight. Exactly. I just think they are. Well, look, here yeah. I have an article here with hard data. You said something about hard data. And here's an article in the Times about uh, coronavirus co causing a coin shortage and what it means for the penny. Now, why is there a coin shortage as a result of COVID-19, you ask? I know you're asking that. 
Uh, it's for two reasons that they, they cite here. One is that consumers have stayed home and avoided emptying their piggy banks of coins in exchange for paper money. I don't know if you've noticed that, but no one's going to those coin dollar machines. And two, shoppers have opted to rely on credit and debit cards instead of touching cash. Well, there might be something to that. Of course, we're talking about coins, not cash, but whatever. Well, I know there's a shortage. Yeah, I, that I don't doubt. Because so, when I went to buy corn down yeah. at Stoltz Market yeah. the other day, the little farm down the road, yeah. they had a sign up. Yeah. They said, please, you know, use change whenever possible. Oh. They said, we cannot get change from the bank. We will buy your extra change. Wow! From you. Wow! Okay. Wow! Well, now we know. So we don't even need the time. So I was I was very um, sure to pay exact well, change. So th this comes into the possibility of they, they have no solution for this in the times, but they say you know here's a here's sort of a backwards backdoor way to get at it. Let's eliminate some coins, namely pennies. And they start the article by quoting a, a woman named Sunday White a 46-year-old small business owner in San Francisco, uh, who is, uh, is quoted the following, quote, I hate pennies, she said. They're so useless, I throw them on a, the ground when I get them back as change. They're so stupid. So this, this woman has strong feelings. She is the, quote, Marie Antoinette of pennies, does want nothing to do with them. And in fact, though, there's a reason to stop making pennies. It turns out that uh, um, the mint manufactured 7 billion pennies in 2019 and lost $70 million doing it. So you say to yourself, how do they lose money making money? How do they lose money making pennies? And the reason is every penny costs two cents to make. Because <laughs> <laughs> <That's> copper. <laughs> Exactly right. But it, don't, they're not even solid copper anymore, I, they, Look, they? No, they're I don't have all the details, but it, okay. no, there is a fair amount of copper in it. Every penny makes two cents <laughs> to make. As someone said, after years and years and losing $70 million, this is a, not a good business for us. So, uh, And it turns out other countries have gotten out of this business. Canada, Britain, Australia have stopped making pennies. Yeah. But, but, but there's another side of it. There is a, uh, a group called, and this is its title, Americans for Common Sense, C-E-N-T-S. It's an advocacy group that favors continuing to make the penny. Uh, and their principal reason is that older pennies are made mostly of copper, which is antimicrobial. So if you have a penny in your pocket, you're fighting the COVID virus, according to these folks. Um, Isn't that an argument for making older pennies? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is an argument for making older pennies. Yeah, well, we should look around yeah, for old pennies. That's a good point. That escaped yeah. the person who wrote And the also, article. once you find those older pennies, what do you do with these antimicrobial wonders? <laughs> do you rub them between your fingers? Uh, they don't do get you, into you it. Keep them in do your you wipe down you, your face with yeah, them? Yeah, you jingle them. Well, you, you rub them while you're thinking listen, and so listen. on. Do you I don't chain think them a, together to make masks? I don't think it's a strong <laughs> argument. No, I think it's a great argument. Uh, okay. I, I'm up for it. You know, people used to have coin collections, so... I mean, if you go into elderly people's homes, they probably have a coin collection somewhere or at least uh, some kind of jar with old pennies. And, uh, I, I don't think the answer is burglarizing our senior citizens. Oh, no, 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 I, I no. I'm just saying go for a visit and Listen, say, hey. There's a political hey, angle to this that I haven't know, really thrown into. Which can is, I monetize that for you? There, um, <laughs> there but, was an effort a few years ago to get rid of it, and it was opposed by a congressman from Illinois. You know why? Why? Because Lincoln's on the penny. 
Uh, <laughs> and, that, and that was an important Is that the only conference. reason the people remember Lincoln? I don't think so. I, apparently, that the people in Illinois are sensitive. But they have another solution to the coin shortage, Which shortage what? idea. What? What? Oh, what, is, what is that? You switched articles on me. I don't know what the other solution is. Use the, you know, people, they came out with the state's quarters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people were collecting them, you know. They want you to use them. Trying to have one from each state, the full thing. You got a wonderful Christmas gift one year. I did? From your father? From Zeke and Noel. Oh, really? They had quarters from Rhode Island with oh, Block oh, Island oh, oh, oh. on them, and, okay, and, your point, and gave them out to everybody. Your point they is, were going to use them for their laundry. Zeke, is this true? <laughs> was this your idea, what Zeke? Is this true? You were there. <laughs> oh, my god! You perceived this gift. Oh, my God. You know, Zeke, uh, all I can say is... Uh, we're thanks. never spending those, no matter what happens. Yeah. Even though it was we're solid. not spending right. the Block Island quarters. Listen, look, all I can say is everything old is new again. We had the same controversy, you'll remember... Uh, over the half penny in 1879, people went crazy. I do not remember and, that. Uh, Thank you very much. We're reliving it. Okay, let, let's get out of the coin business. That was 1857. Yeah, 1857. I'm sorry. I, you know, it's so long ago. I, I confused the years. All right, here's an article that I, I thought was very stimulating. And, it's, and now we're starting to branch away from COVID. Because in a way that COVID is causing people to rethink everything, and the New York Times, of course, is into into just that kind of uh, theorizing. So they have an article, How to Make Sports Better, 60 Modest Proposals, and a very ambitious article in which they discuss four or five major sports, and they say, what can we do to make it better? And they're going beyond COVID. They just see this as a chance for fundamental change. Uh, and I think this is worth just pausing on a minute, maybe not necessarily to consider all their ideas, which most of them are, are not interesting. But also to get your own, to get your own, Zeke, because I know you as a guy mm-hmm. uh, who isn't terribly interested in organized sports, at least watching them, will have strong views on the subject. But you probably agree with the first one they have for Major League Baseball, which is speed up the game. Mm. Is that for you, Zeke? No, I would go with yeah, eliminate the game. <laughs> was, that would be the biggest say, improvement uh, in baseball. Speed up the game? Just, you know, play a game that's speedier, maybe. Just, that, would be, that would be speedier. Okay. Um, yeah, no, this is actually something that I talk about with uh, my brother. You know him. We yeah. uh, we talk about all the time uh, changes we would make to sports. Oftentimes it's water polo because that's the, the sport that right. we're most focused on. But that that didn't make it in the too. times, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it really slipped up missing a big opportunity there. But, the, uh, but still, the, some of our thoughts apply to other sports too. Like there's stuff that uh, I would change. Like I'm, for example, I'm very curious about designs for sports that move away from game clocks. I think game clocks are annoying. I think they might be more trouble than they're worth in a lot of sports. So I would contrast something like basketball with something like tennis. Uh, In tennis, you have this system that's entirely based on the competition between the players. Mm -hmm. It's, It's, you know, really all about the back and forth between them. That's what causes things to stop and start. That's uh, what makes the game end is when one has demonstrated uh, superior ability over the other one. Um, and you, you really like clearly uh, quantify that in how the, the scoring works. But in basketball, instead, you have this very arbitrary limit of, uh, you know, the game clock hits zero and you just you stop because that was it, because that was the clock. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not really driven by the player's performance. And 
Uh, I think this gets mentioned in, in the article at one point that the end of a basketball game is excruciating because he, uh, the teams are basically playing against the clock and hardly each other. The clock is constantly getting stopped. Uh, fouling drags it to uh, a near halt. The more the closer the game is, the more competitive it should be, the less basketball you're actually playing at that point. It becomes this kind of uh, game of free throws and standing around talking. Um, so... Uh, I don't know. Like that's that's the sort of thing that would interest me. Is is you know what if you based uh, the conclusion of the game on scoring instead, or I don't know any kinds of. I'm also interested in other just uh, I don't know big ideas like that uh, in sports. But one thing that this article made me think about is how uh, you know I think part of the reason that that doesn't happen so much is not because the existing rules are good, but because the people who run these leagues and uh, own these teams basically have a have a pretty uh you know conservative sensibility specifically conservative about like what it what their sport means what they're used to um you see some notes in this article about how uh you know women's soccer could organize itself instead of being subject to the decisions of men's soccer right yes that makes a lot of sense uh unless you're an old man who is used to the way things were 60 years ago and uh you don't see why women would need to run their own organizations or well, get equal well, pay. First of all, the, the, the response to this one, believe me, uh, anybody can organize women's soccer if they want. Uh, the only reason it's been organized to some degree by men rather than women is that women haven't stepped into the breach. There's, there's not a lot of competition for being the person who's, who's funding and financing women's soccer. So no one's being excluded on that basis, believe me. Um, Whether really? Because be... there is a major lawsuit about women being paid unfairly. In I understand soccer, that. It's a but, huge controversy. But it has nothing to do with who's, who, who is uh, running it. I mean, first of all... That you know, could... He's saying that it's the rules are based on the format of the men's rules or pay yeah, but that's, but... scales, etc. No, 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 Why no. not consider it? Uh, consider... Uh, actually, but the women lost that lawsuit because they actually aren't suffering on equal pay. So that's going to take us to a legal discussion that's not going to help. But I will say, you realize they lost the lawsuit. Maybe yeah, I, I do realize that. I also realize that that made that the decision in that lawsuit may not be a uh, kind of wise statement on what's best for soccer. It, it wasn't about what's best for soccer. It's about the law. The um, but I do think um, that uh, your first point is interesting, uh, very interesting. Uh, much as I pains me to admit it, it's sort of something I haven't thought of myself. It's very fundamental. It would change things in a very different way. And what I, basketball? No, no, the, getting rid of clock? the clock, getting rid yeah. of time clocks. I mean, uh, that is a much more fundamental way to address, like the timeout thing in, in basketball, which in my mind and, and theirs too. You just eliminate the timeouts, but uh, I think yours is a better idea. I mean, it would take a real change in the way you score these games, but I don't think anyone's really thought about that. So I would put that. I agree. I would put that. How would that work? You would see the first person who gets the first team yeah. that gets to a hundred. Yeah, wins? something like that. Yeah, you could easily do like that. that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the simplest one in basketball. I think in some of the other sports, soccer would be tough because sometimes no one scores. But uh, yeah, I think football is also another interesting case where, like, uh, it would be tricky uh, just because football scoring is so peculiar. But at the yeah. same time, there would almost be a bigger reason to do it in that football runs into big problems with how its clock works. Like, like overtime is a disaster. Right. So like in uh, when you look at, at football, you got to like think about like how do we properly manage this game where, uh, you know, where it just takes so much time to have a meaningful possession. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also football gets really bogged down in, in some things that they mentioned in this article too, like uh, an over an excessive focus on instant replay and yeah. uh, a belief that every play is, is really like really a, a mass of data that has to be combed through to make a perfect <laughs> well, I, technical I, I decision agree with that too. I think, uh, um, I think the second major yeah. idea beyond your first one would be that getting rid of instant replay completely. They have a letter that says, uh, you know, it's just a game. It's not a matter of national security. Uh, yeah, I do that. I mean, uh, they'll make it a whole lot more interesting. If a call goes wrong once in a while, so what? That's part of the game. Everybody lives with some calls in the long run. The calls even out, which is the way people used to think about that. They, and, and, and the third point they had here, which I thought was kind of interesting, and see what you think about this, Zeke, is they get rid of uh, close-in fences or fences at all in terms of home runs. In other words, mm. have the field so big, guy hits the ball a ton, run after it. Uh, and see what happens, which is the way most of us grew up playing baseball. Uh, you can have the outfielders playing deep, in which case they're giving away ground, but then you have more action in the game as opposed to another stoppage, another, you know, wandering around the bases after a ball that goes out of play. I mean, a tricky um, one for that is there are architectural implications, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but there, there are probably ways you could deal with it. Like, I wonder if you could also do something to dampen the bats a bit to just make it just that the existing uh, walls are, are you know, more likely to be at the perimeter of where hitters can get it instead of being, you know, kind of well within the range of a, well, a power. Well, it's even easier hitter. than that, because deadening the ball a little bit or sure. do the reverse. Whatever, yeah, whichever, whichever works. Yeah. All right. But I like your first idea most of all. It's something that never occurred to me. The idea is reworking the way sports work so that it's a scoring system that's uh, based on uh, points rather than time. I think that would solve a lot of problems, but it's so fundamental you wonder whether anyone uh, would go for it. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit, uh, I don't know, maybe we don't have to talk about it at great length, but it's such a complicated subject. There's been a lot of hearings, not hearings, there was a congressional hearing with the leaders of uh, big tech, and what I'm talking about there is the CEOs of Amazon and uh, Google uh, and Microsoft and Apple uh, to answer some tough questions. Is Apple about, and Facebook? Uh, yes. I don't Did think I, Microsoft is there. Yes. Oh, Microsoft wasn't there. I'm sorry. Apple, Facebook, and uh, and Amazon and Google. And um, uh, it gets pretty complicated. Um, I do think that uh, there are some things that they do that are anti-competitive, and I say this sort of an antitrust lawyer, um, or close to anti-competitive, you'd have to really look into it a little more. But to me, um, and I'm interested in your views, because you understand this better technically than I do, uh, it's the way that uh, they deal with the App Store, for example. Uh, I mean, do you view that as anti-competitive or not? It's it's tricky for me to say. I mean, I won't have the perspective that you do on uh, what the legal definition of anti-competitive is, but I do think uh, there are big, big areas in tech where there essentially isn't competition, and it's hard to even know exactly how to handle that. Because I think if you had an equivalent behavior in another industry, especially an older industry, I think it would easily be called anti-competitive. Um, but uh, tech is is new, you know. It it uh, surprises or confuses people, um, and uh, also these companies make a specific effort to make how their business operates so vast and complicated that it's not obvious 
exactly how their anti-competitive practices function. So in the case of the App Store, there are these complexities where uh, Apple, you know, just as a matter of course, in a very obvious way, uh, doesn't allow proper competition on the App Store. If you have an app on the App Store, uh, on their App Store, it's that's the only place you can go to release iOS apps. So the if you if you in any way I guess uh, engage in behavior that Apple wants to provide in their own apps, uh, Apple has kind of an incentive to uh, deal with you one way or the other. They can find an excuse to ban you from the App Store, and they're the only ones who uh, operate that system. So they're not really under any obligation to explain to you in detail why they got rid of you or deal with your appeals. Um, and they can also simply observe what you're doing on their app store and copy your features and put it in free apps that come with the phone so that you can be totally undercut the next time a new version of iOS comes out. Mm -hmm. And they also, for any money that you make through there, they want a 30% cut. And if they think that you're doing anything to get around that 30% cut, like say, hey, my app has a subscription that just operates in general. It's not specific to the iOS app. You know, they might go along with that or they might not. There's recently a prominent example uh, in this uh, with this new mail app that came out. People were excited about its new features for how they could manage their email. And it got released on the App Store. And then when they released an update for it, for some reason, Apple said, oh, no, you can't release that update. They said, you know, we don't like how you're monetizing. We think it violates our rules. So you can't release that update. So your entire product can't get out there to your users on the whim of our review process. And for all their iOS users, they, are, they were cut off. And essentially, like if, if, this, if this situation had gone on for long enough, that might have killed that business. It was only by making a big fuss in the media and drawing a lot of attention to it that they were able to embarrass Apple enough that Apple changed their minds. Well, the, so, the, fundam the fundamental problem, Zeke, isn't it that you can't have an app on, on the Apple phone unless it's blessed by Apple? Yeah, for the most part, that's true. So there why should are, that be? You can, you can kind of hack your way in there, but but generally for any kind of normal, that's, legitimate user, you have to go through Apple. That's what sets up the anti-competitive behavior. Yeah. Why, why should and that it's, be? So they would, but yeah, so they would want to squirm out of that through uh, talking about how that Apple phones aren't the only phones. They'd say, oh, well, people can use that's Android good. phones, and there are lots of people who make Android right. phones, and Android is a much more open ecosystem. They would say there are more Android phones uh, in the world than Apple by a wide margin. And yet, uh, for people who are using Apple products, they, the products are uh, different from uh, Android products. And in many cases, they're higher quality. And also, they're unique. They, they kind of tie into each other in this very uh, helpful but really locked-in ecosystem of products and services. So to it's not it, there's, there's kind of a fundamental difference between are you going to use Apple products or aren't you? If you... You can't freely just use one one day and then say the next day, oh, you know what, I think there's a good deal uh, on this other app store. I'll go use that for a little bit. You really get locked into your selection. Yeah, um, and for a lot of, you know, on the developer side of things, when people are making apps for these devices, they get locked in when they invest, you know, really a lot of resources into a developing an app. And then, uh, as we discussed, are, are totally at the mercy of how Apple wants to run their app store. Well, see, so he, but here's my overarching thought about this. 
uh, and I was picking up an article that I saw recently in the Times and I think got this right. There is the Apple Store issue, uh, and I think you've demonstrated that to really understand it, you need something in the way of a technical appreciation of what's going on, which makes it tricky. And there are similar things with Amazon in terms of uh, imposing conditions on the way people can sell things on Amazon that an antitrust lawyer looks at and says, um, that, that clearly looks like an antitrust problem. But that's not what the hearings are about, is the problem. The article in the paper just the other day said, you know, made just that point and, and talked about the Apple Store stuff, uh, the apps, App Store issue you're talking about, though not at a great length. And I said, strangely, that's not what the, the people in Congress asked about because that's complicated uh, and maybe that's technical. So why are we having these hearings? And the flavor of the article, otherwise, it felt like we're having the hearings because these companies are big and they're prospering at a time when other people aren't prospering, which just sort of adds insult to injury. That notwithstanding everything that's going on in the economy with COVID, notwithstanding the so-called thousand advertiser boycott of Facebook, all the companies we mentioned a moment ago are having huge quarters and continuing to make money. And that is what's spurring the emotional negative reaction. Uh, now, you could say we should just break up big companies because we don't like powerful conglomerates, but that's not the antitrust laws. And that it's, would be the, it's a whole political discussion. So I think people, if they just pursued this as an antitrust investigation and ran it down and even got measures to restrict or change the kind of behavior you just discussed, would be dissatisfied at the end because you'd still have four big highly, highly profitable, some would say dominant companies, the kind of stuff that they're doing that's anti-competitive wouldn't change them in a fundamental way. Sure, so but there, it, there are ongoing antitrust investigations into these companies, right. not only in the US, but also in Europe. And also the question of what the hearing is about is actually something that, that even the folks at the hearing didn't all agree on. You had uh, one Republican just said, uh, introduced uh, the hearing at the time as just being to learn more about what these companies do. Yeah. I guess he was on a school field trip, uh, <laughs> whereas uh, some Democrats were asking more more pointed questions. Um, one one of them did ask Apple uh, specifically about the, the cut that they take in the App Store, saying to them, what is to stop you from charging more than 30%? And to that, Tim Cook said, well, we've never increased the cut that we take. And what he said was, so there's nothing to stop you. <laughs> so they, they're attentive to these issues. And some of these issues are uh, ongoing. They have been for a while. So like uh, uh, some of the some of the folks in the uh, some of the elected officials in the hearing asked Facebook about their acquisition of Instagram some years ago. Right. And that acquisition was allowed to take place. It wasn't uh, blocked as being anti-competitive at the time, but since then, uh, emails have been unearthed in which uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg discusses the acquisition as a uh, potential thing back when they were planning it, basically in anti-competitive terms, saying, you know, this, these folks are going to compete with us and we have to stop them before they do. Mm -hmm. um, and putting, uh, you know, Zuckerberg's feet to the fire on that. Uh, there's also, they also asked uh, the head of Google uh, about how... Uh, there was an acquisition by Google some years ago of a company called DoubleClick that would result in Google having more personal information of users yeah. of, of the internet. And yeah. at the time, part of the reason that the merger was allowed to happen was because Google claimed we can't combine the data we get from DoubleClick 
with the data that we get from our other activities at Google. We can't get too much data about these people and surveil them in some sort of oppressive way because it's it's just too technically difficult. They're, the data is so different or it's so, so separated. And so at the time, that merger was allowed to go through. Uh, cut to a few years later, wow, somehow they did the impossible and they combined all that data. So there are there's there are these ongoing concerns and investigations and there are situations where mergers are allowed and then uh, later uh, you know elected officials discover uh, you know surprise surprise the, these major companies were not entirely honest about uh, how yeah. they operate or yeah. what these what the uh, implications of these mergers were yeah, so, it's so there's there, there's definitely a feeling right now for sure that people are are concerned about you know who's very powerful at this moment when so many feel powerless. But at the same time, there's this ongoing, gradual increase of pressure on these companies to really explain themselves and not hide behind their complexity. Okay, that's fair. All right, we have to go to the museum update. I think this is not really a museum update. You have to say ding, ding, ding. People want to hear that. No, 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 no. Uh, just a little article about uh, Van Gogh. I still say Van Gogh. Um, not Van Gogh. I know you like to say Van Gogh. Uh, but his last day's clue to the last days of Van Gogh is found in his final painting. The scene for the artist's tree roots was hidden in plain sight. This is an article from the New York Times. Uh, 130 years ago, Vincent van Gogh woke in his room at the inn, went out for the day, went painting. That night he returned to the inn with a fatal gunshot wound. He died two days later on July 29th, 1890. And of course, the question has always been, how did he get that gunshot wound? I didn't even know he was Was shot. it self-inflicted? Yeah. Or did somebody shoot That's him? That's right. He's supposed to have committed suicide. Well, supposedly. Um, but then, you know, some guys did some research a couple years ago and came up with a theory that there was actually, you know, that he had uh, annoyed, gotten drunk, and uh, had an altercation with the... Uh, some boys who Ooh. shot him. Anyway, trying, case to pin, Provence. Uh, trying to pin this down, uh, the uh, scientific director of the Van Gogh Institute, uh, which is uh, was formed to a nonprofit established to preserve the artist's room in the auberge, the inn he was staying at at, at the time, was... You know, staring at some old postcards, scenes of, you know, uh, old scenes of France that a 94-year-old woman had collected and had given him to see. And one of the scenes looked rather familiar, okay? And it turned out, uh, it reminded him of a painting by Van Gogh called tree roots and if you look at the photograph the roots there's there's a actually a cyclist standing in the woods in uh, 1905 uh, which is not too far after 1890 right uh, on this road not far from the inn okay and the roots look very similar to the tree roots in the painting by Van Gogh and uh, there's, you know, so they put two and two together. They did a closer inspection and they're, you know, they had some evidence from letters that said uh, Van Gogh spent the day uh, painting this or that. And uh, they think that indeed is the final painting. 
Now, it's been discussed for years. It, you know, many people assumed his final painting was Wheat Field with Crows. Right. Which was done about the same time. But you know why? Why? Because that's what was uh, uh, presented in the movie by Minnelli in 1956 with uh, Kirk Douglas. Lost for Life. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we learn our art history from the movies sometimes. Yeah. We learn our history from the movies. And uh, so people just assume that was true. But now we have some proof that indeed it may be this painting. Now, one aspect of this painting that's kind of interesting is uh, the um, this director, Mr. Uh, Vanderveen, uh, says it seems to portray, uh, in terms of time of day, the sunset, the way the lighting would be at sunset, mm -hmm. which means he, you know, gives us an idea of his timeline. Okay, mm -hmm. that did he really have time to uh, go off, get drunk, fight with these, you know? Um, so he feels that this is proof of the suicide, even though it doesn't seem like a suicidal painting. Okay, why, you know, he doesn't seem to have been in the mood. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, so anyway, uh, and nonetheless, uh, the um, guys who have the uh, theory um, that it was, uh, you know, um, from this altercation with the boys, uh, and one of them is Mr. Naife, yeah. um, says, look, it's not like a painting has a time stamp, you know? Yeah. Who's to say, right. the way Van Gogh painted, that this is really sunset? I mean, yeah. he, he took a lot of license with how he portrayed light and color. Um, you know, uh, so it's, you know, maybe answered some questions, maybe opened up some new ideas, uh, all in all, Mr. Vanderveen says this painting with the roots, the way the roots are tangling and reaching, illustrates struggle. The struggle of life and struggle with death. That's what he leaves behind, his farewell note in colors. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, we, we watch all these uh, PBS uh, detective shows, and I've never seen any plot which said, well... He couldn't have, uh, you know, been at X place at X time because I see this is his last painting and, and look at time of day it was according to the painting. Uh, but, you know, I look forward to seeing that. I mean, it's... Well, it's another piece in the puzzle. Yeah. You know, it's, it's creating that actual timeline. I'm yeah. waiting for the follow-up article where they look closer and, and see that in the painting there's a shadow of someone coming up behind <laughs> him. <laughs> that would be it. That That's would be the be key looking. piece of evidence. Yeah, it, it would be. It would be. All right. So uh, there was a little article out of, for no particular reason, about uh, U.S. Olympians in 1980. This is before your time, Zeke. So you uh, may be aware. No, it was totally for a reason, Daniel. Okay. What's the reason? The, the reason was uh, they have canceled or postponed the 2020 Olympics. Oh, that's true. Okay. And, and what happened in and 1980 so was the U.S. Uh, declined to participate in the Olympics. Or I should say more to the point, Jimmy Carter said the U.S. would not uh, participate in the Olympics in mm -hmm. Moscow unless uh, the USSR kowtowed to uh, you know, what he wanted them to do in terms of uh, withdrawing troops from a particular area. Not U.S. area, but another area. And uh, strangely, they disagreed. Strangely, they said no. And uh, but Carter followed through, said the U.S. Olympians would not participate. They didn't. And uh, what has been determined now... 
is that had no effect on anything in terms of international relations. Uh, All it did was screw up the athletes. Yes, it, and, it just ruined uh, their careers. Yeah, uh, kept them from, from having an opportunity to do what they've been training for right. for so years. Were, and of course, yeah. the Olympic opportunity comes every four years, and there were folks who uh, trained and trained and trained, and that 1980 was going to be their year, and uh, their time never came. Right. Some of them moved on. Yeah. Right. I mean, but some it, of them got completely shut shut out. Right. Now, the article focused on folks who didn't get completely shut out. Uh, they lead re with Ronaldo Nehemiah, who's probably the greatest athlete in the United States at that time. But even he was kind of disadvantaged by this. He was he's a, a hurdler in uh, uh, the shorter hurdles, very athletic. He went to the uh, NFL, which was considered a questionable decision. But where else was he going to go? And he made some money in the NFL, but he didn't succeed. He was, he was a great failure in the NFL. So instead of being a revered track guy like Carl, uh, Carl Davis and uh, Carl Davis, we're going to get it wrong. Who, who's the sprinter, the great sprinter? Um, You're asking the wrong crowd. Okay. Uh, I like the Edwin Moses story. Oh, the Edwin Moses, he was a longer sprinter. And uh, but the, his story was, you know, he, he just had to laugh. If he, he said, I could have done a cartwheel. At the end of the race, the times were he was two the winning seconds ahead time of the winning was, time. Uh, yeah. you know, slower by a, a second, second at least. slower from what he yeah. had done four years previous. Yeah, yeah. So and, it would have uh, been yeah. a piece of cake for him. All right, so it's kind of it's Carl Lewis we're talking about, but Nehemiah was in that class, and he was denied that. Evan Moses, Evan Moses, still Evan Moses. I mean, he won a zillion times in a row with uh, a zillion Olympic medals. I don't think he ended up losing much. It's the guys who really had won Olympics in them. Who really got hurt and they're not well known and they, they didn't get to uh, use any kind of uh, Olympic push or any fame to, to develop a career or anything else and they were really denied the but, opportunity. But what do you think of the idea? Of what? Of uh, the Olympic Committee apologizing. Well that's what you're, you're seeing. Behavior that happened uh, all these years 40 years ago. Well the funny thing is Mondale was the vice president has sort of apologized since then. Jimmy Carter has apologized since then. So uh, he didn't really apologize. Well, yeah. He said Mon it was a bad Mondale idea. Said, Mondale said it, they did the right thing, but he's sorry about how it hurt them. All right. I think Jimmy Carter so, was more direct, though. Yeah, but so, so now we're going to just walk around and apologize well, for everything that's happened? Apologies don't mean that much anyway, but uh, uh, it was a mistake. It was clearly a mistake then. I remember I thought it was a mistake. I think most people did, actually. Well, and they were just playing political football with right. these uh, and it's, athletes. And they no surprise, two nothing. months later, Jimmy Carter was defeated in his uh, attempt to be reelected. Uh, it, was, it was not a popular decision, and it was probably a wrong decision. So uh, I thought the, the worst part, uh, or maybe just, just the, the most painful part uh, of the story they told here, was that these athletes were given the Congressional Gold Medal, Right. And, Only uh, it wasn't gold. That was supposed to be their consolation prize, but there but it was too expensive to get that many gold medals. And so uh crushingly they you know, what did they decide to actually make the medals out of? Bronze. And then they put gold around it. And I was like, Oh, oh, for Lame. some of these athletes. Imagine Lame. imagine saying like I've already done, you know, gold medal performances in, in my event and then someone hands you a bronze medal that they put something around to make it look gold. That well, I yeah. think is like maybe just don't give them the medal. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe just don't bother. Yeah, I agree with that. So, and the final thing uh, wrapping up is that uh, some of us, I, I would be me in this group, have been watching sports uh, over the last week or two. And there's a heck of a lot of sports and uh, people doing uh, 
sports call shows are thrilled. There's so many things to talk about. There's basketball, there's hockey, there's baseball. Um, and they are playing. Now they're playing without crowds. So how satisfying or unsatisfying is it? And how does it change the game? And they are piping in crowd noise. Whenever you watch a broadcast, then it probably helps. Uh, watch a baseball game. Anything helps, you would say, see. They, uh, you know, they feel like there's a little action going on. There's a little uh, liveliness to it. Uh, but it changes the game in a fundamental way. Um, they, and it comes up in the context of, um, of odds makers. And they say the odds are completely wrong. There's a chance for you to make some money here, Zeke. Um, there are a few things. Number one, the lack of crowds changes the performance, they've decided, of the players in the field. A lot of guys are juiced up by crowds. Uh, you know, they can throw the ball 91 miles an hour in the bullpen, but no faster. They get on the mound when there's a big crowd, and suddenly they can throw a 94-95. Really? Apparently, everyone says that's true, and a lot of pitchers aren't throwing as hard as they normally pitch on the mound because they don't have the crowds urging them yeah, on. Yeah. The sound is not piped in on the yeah. field. It's only in the broadcast. Um, the, uh, the other thing about it is that the, um, uh, there's no home field advantage anymore. That used to be the teams would win about 55% of their games at home. Uh, again, crowd noise being a part of it, crowd support being a part of it. So that's gone. So if you're betting on the game, you have to take into account that it doesn't make any difference whether you're playing in one team's park rather than the other team's park. It's just uh, neutral. Uh, and finally, with respect to um, people thinking about who's going to come in first place or if you're betting on it, betting on who's going to come in first place, it's a short season. So there's an awful lot of randomness here. I mean, uh, things in a, you know go to form over 160-game season in the Major League Baseball, but over a 60-game season, the team can be relatively hot for a short period of time, even if they're an inferior team, and, and win quite a bit and get themselves to the playoffs and maybe even win the whole thing. They say that the point, um, there are two teams that, and, and they say, by the way, that uh, people have not taken this account in the odds. The betters are betting on teams according to who the star players are, according to traditional concerns, and they're not taking into account the short season. So teams like the Milwaukee Brewers, they mentioned here in the Minnesota Twins, are being are not being bet down, uh, but they're a tremendous value. So everything's all screwed up. But, you know, and yet it's, it's interesting to watch whether you th take it seriously uh, or you don't take it seriously. It is a diversion. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks like uh, there's some issues in Major League Baseball, but basketball is pretty clean. They don't have any COVID-19 interruptions there. Um, and we'll see. I mean, uh, it might work out. The only thing that, again, true to form, as I said last week, the Mets are terrible. So that tells you that there's normalcy is returning. You know, they won last night. Did they? Yeah. I have to, I have to get back into it. I don't think they, I didn't think they played. All right. I don't know. I saw something on TV that said the Mets won. I'll have to check you really are on right island away. time. <laughs> We're back on island time. You're right. All right, we got. I got to check that right away. We ought to close the broadcast. So uh, until next week, this is Tamson Granger and Dan Abuhoff and Zeke Abuhoff. Yeah. yeah, it's me too. Yeah. <laughs> With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you again next week. Bye bye.